Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Clinton here, host of Pro-Life Thinking. This podcast that you're about to hear has some unfortunate sound issues. I went through the audio for Blog Talk Radio, and for some reason, the audio from my microphone was choppy in certain places. I did record my audio through Audacity as well, and I was going to replace the choppy Blog Talk Radio audio with the audio I recorded through Audacity. Unfortunately, as I was doing post-production on the episode, Audacity crashed and I lost all the audio I had recorded. I've been having issues with Audacity recently, so I may end up getting a paid program that I can record audio through, something that is more reliable. So unfortunately, the audio recording here isn't great, but it should be clear enough that you can understand the point of what I was saying or the question I asked of Father Frank. With that being said, I hope you are still able to enjoy the episode and that the audio issues are not too distracting. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Uh, Good afternoon. Welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we discuss the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm your host, Clinton Wilcox, and I am joined by my co-host, Nathan Apodaca. How are you doing, Nathan? Good, Clinton. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Uh, I appreciate you uh, giving up your Memorial Day weekend for this podcast. Anytime. Yeah. Uh, before we begin, I'll take a few minutes to talk about Memorial Day. You know, a lot of people are either in the military themselves or have family members who are, uh, may or may not be aware that it actually is uh, in the Army. And uh, so I was just kind of curious about, uh, do you have any rituals or things you usually do on Memorial Day to kind of commemorate the lost soldiers? Or what, what's your usual Memorial Day look like? Yeah, well, like you mentioned, I'm uh, currently in serving the Army National Guard. I've been in the uh, National Guard for about six years now, and I did a deployment two years ago to the Middle East. Usually just a bit of a moment of silence and then just reflecting on the sacrifice that other people have made. It kind of, I noticed uh, Memorial Day and Veterans Day took on a bit of a new meaning for me when I joined the Army, Uh, just kind of realizing it's like, oh, you know, a lot of the men who uh, served and sacrificed and lost their lives in service to the country. Uh, a lot of them were actually just like me. I mean, I joined when I was 19. There's guys who've served since they seven, they were 17. And so it kind of brings it home to you in a new way uh, when you're serving yourself or when you have a family member who's very close to you who's serving. And so usually on Memorial Day, I just spend a bit more time reflecting on that and just understanding that, you know, there's a lot of, a lot that goes into it. I mean, in a way, our culture has kind of romanticized serving in the military, but reality, service members are just like you and me. They're not really much different. And so just kind of understand that uh, it brings it home in a new way, usually for Memorial Day and Veterans Day. I mean, Memorial Day, I usually take some extra time just to, to focus on that, reflect on that. So you're saying that unlike the memes that we see going around Facebook, you don't always uh, eat a mountain of bacon and your uh, your gun right by your your plate. No, that's Fourth of July. I do that. Oh, uh, uh, okay. Uh, Memorial Day. I mean, it's a bit more. Of, honestly, I think it's more of a sacred holiday. I mean, and for any of our listeners, if you know a combat veteran and they start telling you their stories, 
my recommendation, just listen to them. Some combat vets, everybody's different, but a lot of combat veterans, they will, sometimes they just want somebody to listen to and not give their opinion, especially, you know, if you're a civilian, you don't entirely understand what they may have gone through. So especially with Memorial Day, I mean, uh, you have a lot of Gold Star families out there, a Gold Star family, somebody who lost a family member overseas. So, I mean, with Memorial Day, usually I just try to make sure that I'm a bit more patient and uh, uh, listen and uh, more respectful to the people who have lost a family member serving. Yeah, I think maybe the military gene skips a generation because I have uncles who were in the military. My dad was in the military. My nephew was in the military. He was in the Navy. Uh, but neither myself or any of my siblings actually went into the military. My brother and I signed up for, for the draft, but never actually went into the military. So I think the military gene probably skipped a generation. Uh, but I myself have, have had family uh, killed in, in the line of duty and not in the line of duty. My uncle, Billy Joe, a very uh, actually died during the Vietnam War. And uh, I've, I've been to his uh, his grave in Las Cruces, New Mexico. And um, another uncle, uh, Jim DeMarco, died last year. He, he was out of active duty. But uh, after he had died, he actually I attended his funeral in Diego. And so I actually got to to attend a, a full-fledged military funeral. Yeah, so so two uncles on my mom's side, and uh, we lost my uncle on my dad's side, Uncle Clinton, who I think was probably in the military too. And so I was actually named after my Uncle Clinton and my Uncle Jim. Yeah, so bo- both of my namesakes have uh, passed on. But yeah, so I definitely who were uh, in the military as well. So uh, to those yeah. who've, who've lost uh, family members in the military, we, we feel you. And you know, we hope that uh, you're able to, even going through this this lockdown with the quarantine, we hope you're able to to just remember them and, and keep their memory alive whatever way you need to from a distance, you know, the six feet of social distancing. Okay, so with that being said, we do have a, a special guest, Father Frank Pavone, who I'm sure to a lot of you probably needs no introduction, but um, I'll give him one anyway. Uh, Father Frank uh, Father Pavone is one of the most prominent pro-life leaders in the world. Originally from New York, he was ordained in 1988 by Cardinal John O'Connor and since 1993 has served full-time in pro-life leadership with his bishop's permission. He is the National Director of Priests for Life, the largest pro-life ministry in the Catholic Church. He's also the President of the National Pro-Life Religious Council and the National Pastoral Director of the his campaign and of Rachel's Vineyard, the world's largest ministry of healing after abortion. He travels throughout the country to an average of four states every week, preaching and teaching. He produces programs regularly for religious and secular radio and television networks. He was asked by Mother Teresa to speak in India on the life issues and has addressed the pro-life of the United States House of Representatives. Um, and there's more to his bio. You can find the rest of this on the Praise for Life website. Primarily, he knew Jane Roe personally. And in fact, uh, the, the end of his bio here says that uh, he's the author of four books, Ending Abortion, Not Just Fighting It, Pro-Life Reflections for Every Day, Abolishing Abortion, and Proclaiming the Message of Life. Uh, Norman McCorvey, the Jane Roe of the Supreme Court's Roe versus Wade abortion decision, called Father Frank me into the Catholic Church. And so considering that there is this recent documentary called AKA Jane Roe, in which Norman McCorvey was captured on video making some fairly controversial claims, I wanted to bring on one or two people who actually knew Jane Roe slash Norman McCorvey personally. And so has been instrumental in her spiritual growth. I really wanted to, to have him on to give his personal thoughts about uh, about this documentary. So Father Frank, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So we are recording the show live. If you're listening live and you have a question for Father Frank, you can call in at 646-668-8257. Once again, that's 646-668-8257. If you do call in, keep your calls relevant to the topic at hand. If your question doesn't fit into the discussion, uh, we'll likely just move on and and not directly answer it. So please uh, respect the the time of our guest and uh, make sure your, your questions are relevant to the discussion here. So once again, just kind of foreshadow on the main topic here, we're talking about Norman McCorvey's alleged deathbed conversion on the documentary, a.k.a. Jane Roe. Uh, before we get there, though, Father Frank, knowing why you're pro-life, what's kind of your journey to being pro-life? 
My own journey is uh, one that, um, you know, I was in public schools growing up. I was never very religious. We went, our family went to church on, on Sundays, but really nothing beyond that. But I loved my studies, and uh, it was the study of math that led me deeper into my faith. Uh, because uh, when you get deeper into mathematics, you know, it becomes more abstract, and you deal with concepts of infinity and concept of infinity is not that far from the concept of eternity and i started thinking about things more philosophically and <clears throat> that le led me into the bible and praying more and then going to church every day and here i was still a high school senior in a in a in a public school and when the people in the parish saw me coming to church every day they said well what do you are you thinking of becoming a priest and i said well no but well, maybe i should but during that very same time I, I became aware of the abortion issue and the pro-life movement. It was 1976, and uh, I went to the March for Life, the third annual March for Life. And that really just opened my eyes to this whole movement. I was never in favor of abortion, but I, I saw uh, with the vast diversity and positive spirit of this crowd that was there in our nation's capital to stand up for these babies, I saw how important an issue this was and how big a movement it is. And then I got involved a little by little that became a growing concern, and at a certain point I, I felt the call to, to devote my entire time and energy and ministry to defending these children in the womb and to ending abortion. And that's where I remain today. And so that's also sort of how you became a priest, too? You, you took the, the question that was posed to you seriously and decided to follow up with it? Or what, what kind of led exactly. into that? It was. It was. It was something that uh, that struck me because I was discovering so much joy in 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 the practice of the faith. I mean, it was a faith I had learned years and years before. But uh, the the joy, for example, of receiving the Eucharist every day as a Catholic and really getting into the Scriptures and and realizing the power and the the peace that comes from prayer. I just I said what would what a great thing it would be to help other people discover these things and that's what really led me then on the path to discern the priesthood. Oh great. So to give a little bit of a background then of of Jane Roe and the Roe v. Wade decision and Father Frank of course you can you can correct me if any of my my information is wrong here because I was actually born in 1981 so that was uh, Almost a, almost a full decade after Roe v. Wade. So if any of my, my facts are wrong here, please feel free to, uh, to correct it here. Uh, so the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court case then is the case that legalized abortion in the United States, essentially stating that states could restrict abortion after viability of the fetus, but could not restrict it before. Though, of course, its sister case, V. Bolton, established that after viability, states must allow abortions in the case of a woman's health being in jeopardy. Uh, or its sister case, Dovey Bolton, established that even after viability, states must allow abortions in the case of a woman's health being in jeopardy, then defined health so broadly as to essentially negate its clause. States could only restrict abortion after viability. Norma McCorvey, a.k.a. Jane Roe, was, uh, well, alleged that she was raped and had gotten pregnant and wanted an abortion in Texas. And then two attorneys caught wind of this and thought McCorvey's case would be perfect to challenge Texas's standing abortion laws and used her essentially as a poster child for why abortions are needed in Texas. Uh, do, do I pretty much have that right, or is there anything you'd like to add to yes. that brief history of the case? No, no, that's right. And, and you know, the, the relevant thing, as you traced a little bit of the, the legal uh, uh, implications of these twin decisions, uh, so much reporting on what the decision said, including in this documentary that we're, we're discussing today, uh, mm -hmm. leads people to the, to the idea that Roe allowed abortion only in the early part of pregnancy, only in the first three months. That is not at all the case. Mm -hmm. Of course it allowed abortion in the first three months and also in the second three months and also in the third three months. It allowed it right. throughout pregnancy. And that's a position that the American people have never, never supported by any kind of, of majority uh, margin. So you were saying that you really became around 19, uh, around 1973? And that, became, that was the I'm change. sorry. That, that you, um, you, you were saying you became when I became yeah, when I, well, when I became in the movement, that's right. When I got involved mm -hmm. in the project, it was just in those years immediately after Roe v. Wade. So you were, uh, were you cognizant of Roe v. Wade, or was it not really on your radar because you hadn't really thought much about it at, at that specific point yet? Wasn't uh, wasn't on the radar. I remember our parish priest mentioning abortion one Sunday in a, in a homily, but no, it wasn't on mm -hmm. it wasn't on my radar. Okay. Now, have you had a chance to watch the documentary A. Jane Roe? 
Yes. Okay, would you mind uh, just kind of giving us your overall feelings about it? I, I have some specific questions to ask you here, too, but I, I kind of like you could just to kind of give your overall impression of it and any, any thoughts you have about it. Well, as you mentioned before, I knew Norma very well. I mean, I knew her so well for 22 years that we were really became like siblings. And together with Janet Morana, my close associate here at Priest for Life, the three of us interacted in our lives on a professional level, on a personal level, in public, in private, in joys and sorrows. We helped Norma uh, go through the journey of conversion, and I want to emphasize that word journey, and we'll come back to, to that in, in, in our discussion. But um, helped her in her journey of conversion, helped her in her public work, and enjoyed life with her in private. Uh, she came to many personal occasions in my own life and vice versa. Uh, we just chatted and texted and emailed and called on the phone all the time. So I knew her. I knew her behind the scenes. And, and the, my, my overall uh, impression of this documentary, I think we have to divide it into two parts. Uh, the first part, which is the longer part, uh, talks about you know Norma's childhood, very rough life, um, her growing up, her her uh, just really the things that led to the Roe v. Wade decision and the decision itself, and you know it, it conveys a lot of facts about that uh, that part of her life. The part of it where it kind of goes off the track is in the latter part where uh, the interviewer is talking to her during the final year of her life when she was in an assisted living facility, a facility, by the way, that I helped her to find, and uh, that, you know, all during this time that she was taping the documentary, I was in communication with her, and I've even shared with some reporters some of the texts that I've, uh, uh, she and I exchanged during those days which show that he had, she had not abandoned the pro-life position. But the point of the, of the documentary is in, uh, in that section, two things we have to keep in mind. Number one, it, 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 there seem to be two different worlds here, the world of what the documentary actually shows and the world of the pro-abortion uh, media hype that followed it uh, were, and the claims that they make. The documentary does not prove and does not show Norma even saying that her conversion was fake or that she was paid in order to be, say that she was pro-life or that she rejected her, her um, pro-life stance or that she thought abortion was okay or that she thought Roe v. Wade was correct. She didn't say any of those things. And, and the other thing about it is that the, uh, the, the documentary also features, um, uh, I mean, the people in it, I know all of them, and, and Rob Shank the one who uh, spoke the most, Reverend Rob Shank, is also, has also been a friend and colleague for a very long time. And if you watch the documentary carefully, that last part talking about, oh, well, did Norma change, or what does she think now? We have Rob Shank interpreting Norma's uh, not only uh, uh, position, but the way that she was uh, treated within the pro-life movement. Now, Reverend Rob Shank, I have great respect for him, and, and you know, like I say, we've been friends for, for decades. But people have to understand this, this man has changed his own position. I mean, he was with us on the front lines fighting abortion for decades, calling for the reversal of Roe v. Wade, calling for laws that would end abortion. He no longer thinks that way. I mean, it's not that he thinks there should be unlimited abortion, but he no longer thinks the way that he did about the wisdom uh, and he, in fact, he says it in the documentary, the wisdom of um, uh, of reversing Roe v. Wade. So I, I think there's a there's a danger here. If we really want to understand what Norma McCorvey thinks and what she thought in that last year of her life, we need a whole lot more than what the documentary provides. If we want to know what Rob Shank thinks and how he changed, well, then the documentary gives us a very good idea of that. So I think people have to start with, uh, you know, weighing all those, uh, weighing all those factors. A lot of the things Norma says in the documentary are sentences that are just hanging in midair. In other words, most of the time we don't hear the question that's being answered by her statement, nor do we hear any follow-up. And, for example, some of the media outlets were saying, oh, well, you know, she said, uh, you know, what she did in the pro-life movement was all an act. Those were not her words. 
Those were not her words. Those were Nick's words. The guy who was filming her, that's, that was, those were his words. Now, you have to understand, when you talk to Norma, uh, you know, I, I, I talked with her continuously over 22 years. We knew she was a bundle of contradictions, and she could be easily led in one direction or another. Now, that doesn't mean that her conversion wasn't sincere. The only way to know where Norma really stood or what she thought about something and what, where she stood and where she thought, of course, did change in many ways. But the only way to know her is time. Norma McCorvey is not somebody that you get to know in an interview, especially when you're asking leading questions. Uh, and we can get into more of the details of that. Uh, I think people also need to put in context she was paid to do this, this documentary. Um, I know I know that because I have the <laughs> because I was talking to her during those days and she even texted me uh, when she started taping. She I have the text here I have it right here on my phone and she said uh, yeah she says I'm talking with this fellow from uh, come down from New York via Australia and uh, he um, you know I'm 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 I'm, uh, I'm really happy because I'm going to get some I'm going to get some money from this and uh, I, I'm sitting here broke and uh, that so now I'm doing this interview so again context, uh, these are some of the elements of the context of understanding this document. One of the things that I had read in the before actually watching the uh, I guess maybe it bears saying, first of all, that a lot of the, a lot of the things that I read from price people and from pro-choice people and from, you know, just from a wide variety of people, even pro-life people who are I, I guess part of the like the feminist movement and, and things like that, they were all kind of coming to these conclusions about Norma McCorvey on the advertising for it and had really made up their minds about all this before the actual documentary was uh, was broadcast. And so that kind of struck me as a little bit odd that we that rather than waiting until the, the documentary releases and we're able to watch it, that people were already kind of coming to these conclusions about what, what McCorvey said before they were actually able to watch the the recording of McCorvey in context of the documentary. Yes. Well, that was interesting, wasn't it? It, it was more, It's almost like there was more firestorm before the documentary than after, mm. <laughs> although we'll, right. we'll have to see what happens in the, in the next few days. But it just shows, first of all, it shows the volatility of the abortion issue. Um, and um, But secondly, you know, some of that was fueled by the fact that so many of us uh, were commenting on what we know she did say, because you know, especially those of us that knew her very well. Uh, I mean, other people, like you say, it's it's uh, you know, it's not it's not wise to comment on on something you haven't uh, seen or to comment on hypotheticals, you know. And and right. so that is uh, that is not wise because then you end up seeing it and you say, okay, well, let me be more specific here in my response. Mm -hmm. um, and right. uh, but yes, you're, that, that's a good observation. I thought it kind of sounded a lot like free advertisement for the documentary because a lot of times you'll you'll see a movie like Ghostbusters 2016 which really rides on the controversy of you know putting four women in the place of the original Ghostbusters and all this controversy you might watch the movie and then it's like you know what was the big deal but they got all that free publicity deal, because right. it was in the it was right. in the public consciousness because of that and that kind of felt like the same thing going on here with this documentary that all of this this controversy about it was really just free advertisement for the documentary that's kind of what it what it felt well, like to me that's a good point too and and certainly those who who profit from the documentary would want that to happen um and i mm -hmm. thought it was some i thought compared to the hype it was somewhat of a dud and and what do i mm -hmm. mean you know they they were using because because it was part of what norma said they were using the phrase deathbed confession okay this was right. not a deathbed confession um, that's not what it was, uh, because they, uh, the texts that I have from Norma and the conversations I had with her uh, indicate, you know, she was filming, okay, for this documentary in May of 2016. Well, she didn't die until February of 2017. And uh, so, and she was, as I say, she was benefiting monetarily from doing this. So to say it's a deathbed yeah. confession raises the, there's a lot of ambigu ambiguous language being used here. Um, and, and it makes you think that, oh, you know, well, as she was dying, she said, oh, I have a confession to make all of my, you know, my conversion wasn't real. And she never said her conversion wasn't real. And, 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 and so the thing about it is that she um, uh, was, was, was talking over the course of months with this filmmaker and you know I'd like to see the raw unedited footage because as I say you don't know what questions most of the time 
are are leading to her answer. So you don't know what specifically yeah. she's responding to or whom specifically she's talking about when she makes certain comments about certain people or groups of people. Norma did use the phrase, you know, this is my deathbed confession in the documentary. You, that was maybe a phrase that was kind of fed to her and she picked up on it? Or why do you think well, she would have chose, uh, you know, chosen Norma that was, Norma well, Norma was fond of, of, of using expressions. You know, she, she always wanted to, be, she wanted to be a movie star. She says that in the early part of the documentary, and I, I knew that right, from, right. from her. So she had a dramatic flair. And you notice in, in, in the documentary when she says it, she says it with a, with a chuckle. You know, and so, yeah, she would talk. That's the way she would, she would talk. So, oh, I'm going to, you know, she, she would always, she would dramatize things, you know, a notch or two uh, before, before uh, uh, getting, getting into that. But it's like, yeah. okay, Norma, deathbed confession, but again, look at the ambiguity. Deathbed confession, about what? About the kind of confession you've been making all your life, that you, you lied about your role in Roe v. Wade, and then you, you became part of a decision that you really didn't believe in, and that's an important point, too, and that you were part of you know, legalizing abortion that led to 60, to 60 million deaths. She was making that confession all her life. And she never said that any of those things, you know, she uh, she uh, she no longer believed um, this business about things being all an act. Uh, you know, again, these were Nick's words, but what she was saying was she wasn't always comfortable in the role that she was being placed by some leaders in the pro-life movement. Well, of course she wasn't. This was not her in- environment. This was not, you know, she was thrust into um, the public um, spotlight. Uh, right after her conversion, but that wasn't the real. That wasn't the totality of what she was doing. Uh, I knew her on the front lines. We stood together at in many of these events, and she always had to be coached, especially if she was in formal events. You know, she wasn't that kind of person. She she wasn't that kind of person when she was with the with the pro-abortion movement either. You know, she was always sort of uh, more ragtag. You know. Uh, down-to-earth, simple, straightforward, uh, ruthlessly so, and, and blunt, and, and so forth. Even in, I, I remember in the, you know, in the, there was a, a congressional hearing that she was part of together with the, uh, some of the other leaders of the various uh, pro-abortion groups, and so they all inter- were asked to introduce themselves, you know, in this formal hearing, and then they came to Norma, and she said, well, I'm, I'm Norma McCorvey, I'm the Jane Roe of Roe v. Wade, and then she turned to these other leaders, and she said, these ladies here, they just wish they were. You know, and then she actually said something critical of them, and it was like they were looking at her and saying, "Hey, Norma, what are you doing? This is not good." So she was never um, in. She, 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 she. In, in some sense, she always felt a little, you know, out of place. So of course, she had to. She had to force herself to fit into the mold. And you can say, "Well, yeah, I, you know, I had to act." When you say it was an act, that is not the same as saying. I believed abortion was okay, well, although I was saying it was wrong. A, she didn't say that, and B, that's not the only meaning of those words. And this is where it's kind of astonishing when you watch the documentary. If she were to say something, as, if she were to, to say or agree with some of these statements, um, especially a leading question like, oh, so it was all an act? Yeah, okay, you don't think that there should be some follow-up to that? It's like, okay, Norma, let's analyze what do you still believe or what did you believe and what did you not believe, and you would break it down. It doesn't take that long, a few sentences. So, Norma, do you think that the baby in the womb is a baby? Uh, because you used to think it wasn't, and then you said it was. Now do you think it's not? Do you think that abortion should be legal throughout pregnancy, like Roe v. Wade says, or did you think that before, or do you think it now, or do you think uh, it should be? I mean, wouldn't you ask a few quick follow-up questions to specify? If this is so yeah. monumental, right? If it's, oh, it's a deathbed confession. Oh, this is, if this is so monumental, why on earth do we not see any, any digging deeper into the question? That is why the whole thing comes off as, as really um, a staged – it comes off as the very, as the very thing – that 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 uh, that Rob Schenk is complaining the pro-life movement did to her. Oh, Father Pavone, yeah. uh, Nathan here. I just wanted to jump in Hi. with a, a quick follow-up question. Yeah, sorry, I've been sure. on here the whole time, but uh, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Right. How you doing? It, it's good to be with you. Yep. I usually yeah. just hang out in the back and then pop out every now and then. Excellent. Yeah. 
something that came up, a uh, uh, thought that came to mind, uh, Rebecca Kissling from Save the One, she also uh, yeah. uh, made a similar remark to what you just said, is that uh, Norma did have a tendency of, I guess, being spontaneous. She would sometimes uh, say things that seemed really bizarre or uh, just kind of really out of place. And uh, Rebecca was saying that it, it might be the case that the filmmakers may have taken advantage of her on that. Do you think that's possible? Oh, definitely possible. Well, as a matter of fact, you know, I know that she was in a bad frame of mind. Let me give some context of her frame of mind during those days she was taping. She um, uh, lived uh, in the Dallas, uh, greater Dallas area, um, uh, in the home of a, of a pro-life. She lived in various places at various times, okay? So she was in the home of a pro-life activist from the end of 2012 to the end of 2015. In December 2015, going into January 2016, we were helping her and her daughter make arrangements for her to go into a facility where there would be some more uh, sort of assisted living, some more medical care, because we saw her COPD was getting worse. And um, so we uh, got her into a facility, and uh, her, t- her relationship with her family has never been good. She, in fact, she has a poignant line in the documentary when, when uh, uh, they ask her, you know, do you miss your family? And she says, you know, you can't miss what you never had. Um, mm. And she really didn't have a, a family. But, but she has her daughter, Melissa, or Missy, as she calls her, um, and she had a, you know, a rocky relationship with her. So there were times when I was acting as the bridge between Norma and her, and her daughter in all this communication, but Norma was, very, was becoming rather paranoid, actually, about her daughter taking her, her savings and doing other things. And, you know, that wasn't Melissa because, you know, I had my own independent, independent communication with her. So that wasn't what she was doing. But, but I'm, I'm pointing out Norma's frame of mind. It was a time of great anxiety, uncertainty about her, her, her future, her family, her finances. Now, finances were always a problem uh, for her. Um, I mean, she would turn to me sometimes. I have texts from her that say, Father, can you send me $20? I don't even have enough money for cat food for my cat. So, I mean, she really she had a lot going on. And, and her health, of course, now was looming at larger as an issue as she transitioned. And, you know, it's never easy to move. And we were arranging, you know, which of her things from Dallas she wanted sent down to, uh, to, to, down to the Houston area where where, where her daughter was that's where we had her go and um and 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 so she had all these anxieties now norma was the kind of person who and with all of us who befriended her you know you had to be you had to be careful because if you tried too much to help her if she got the feeling like you were controlling her she would rebel and she did rebel against a a number of our pro-life colleagues there were times when she was angry with me, but we always, you know, we always landed on our feet and, and stayed, stayed, uh, stayed close. But, but though there were times when, when, you know, she was angry and frustrated with me, too. So one of the very first days that she was taping, uh, specifically in May of 2016, she texts me what I mentioned before, that, oh, you know, this guy here is filming me. Okay, I'm going to get some money for it. I'm happy about that, she said. Then she said in another text that very same day, she said, Father, I'm sitting here extremely upset. You know, I don't understand. There are pro-life people who are saying they're going to get back to me, and I, all I need is an address or a, of a phone number to send them a message or, a, or something, and, and, and they don't get back to me. And then she started venting, I'm not part of this movement anymore. I'm not part of you people. Oh, I'm still in favor of saving babies, and I believe in God, but I, you know, I'm tired of all this. And, and, and then in the end she says, but I thank you, Father, and bye-bye, I'll talk to you later. And then the next day she's fine. But the point is that the frame of mind of I'm not part of this movement anymore is the frame of mind she was in, and that fully explains why she would be able to make some of the kind of statements she does make in that documentary, Um, even though still she never claims that her conversion was fake. She never claims that. But the point is that uh, she was like that, and we came to know, like I said at the beginning of our conversation, to know Norma. Okay, we've got 22 years, not only of private conversations, of public statements, but 22 years of actions. Now, as people are reacting to this documentary, I'm, I'm wondering when I'm going to hear the phrase, actions speak louder than words, because that's a pretty dependable maxim. And, um, you know, actions speak louder than words. Not only did she, her conversion was not just a matter of saying I am no longer the row, and I reject the decisions. Not no longer. It's not just a matter of saying that. 
conversion and repentance when you've been involved in abortion and we've we minister to we've got the largest ministry in the world for healing after abortion and we work with former abortionists i was instrumental in abby johnson's journey for example um we know what these people feel like and what they think like and uh the uh thing about norma is and about any of these people who once advocated abortion and remember norma worked in abortion clinics and then they come out. One of the things to keep in mind is that the repentance and the conversion are a journey, and it's hard work. You're grieving, you're adjusting, you're repenting, you're dealing with nightmares, you're dealing with uh, resentment and hatred and broken relationships and regrets and damaged self-esteem and not sure who God is or how he's going to punish you. I mean, you're dealing with a cluster of things. And you know what? We saw Norma close up dealing with all of that, all of it, in a spiritual and psychological context, in healing retreats, in, in private conversations, in, in private sessions where, you know, she would bear her soul. Some people have been saying, you know, in the midst of this controversy, oh, well, you really can't know what was in her soul. Well, actually, yes, you can, because she, she exposed uh, it to us. And, and so she went, you don't, these things you don't fake. I mean, if you're any counselor or psychologist, and we have, a, a, you know, pro-life psychologists who helped her along the way and psychiatrists um, and, and clergy, including myself, you know when a person is faking something, and you also know when they mean it because they take the sacrifices they need to take to work through the grief, and Norma did that. She did it in a courageous way. And so nobody, that's why when this thing first came out, I said there's zero chance, there's zero chance that her change was, was, was fake. Zero chance. Because we were there. I mean, people who just, oh, we know that Norma McCorvey changed because she said so. Okay, so if people hear her say so and then think they hear her say, no, it wasn't so, then they might say, gee, I'm really not sure now. No, no, we we were sure. We are sure because we journey. It was. It wasn't just what she said. It was the journey of her conversion and repentance. So there's a lot to it. There's a lot underneath the surface, but we're glad that we're able to to share that. Thank you. That was very well said. Thank you. I've been kind of suspecting that this uh, this documentary, the counterattack by pro-choice people regarding the uh, the David Delighton uh, videos, which painted Planned Parenthood in a really bad light because of their profiting off of aborted fetal uh, body parts. Do you think might be any truth to that, or you think this well, might be unrelated? Good, well, that's a good point. Um, you know, I mean, if any of those responsible for the video are um, uh, in favor of abortion and were aware of that, you know, you would certainly think that this could be a uh, uh, could be exactly that. But you know, the interesting thing about that is. Um, comparing the reactions from them, right? I mean, how many and how many of these articles cuz I don't remember seeing one was were the phrases heavily edited uh that phrase heavily edited video uh did did, did did that phrase appear in any of these articles about this documentary? Hardly. I mean, I don't think I saw one. So, you know, interestingly, but that's all they could say about the David Delighton videos. You know, there you saw the baby, the aborted babies in those videos. There you heard one after another after another of these people tell what they do and you saw them make the transactions. But it's like heavily edited, okay, do you think maybe there was some editing involved in this one? Of course, there's always editing, and it's it's not that it's not that you know I wouldn't say just like uh you know they couldn't say about the delighted videos that we're putting words in people's mouths. What I'm saying is just like David released the unedited footage, Nick needs to do the same thing so that we can see what question. The statement was answering and what the follow-up was. Do you think it would be appropriate to tell people that they shouldn't really be rushing to judgment on this? That I mean, you know how when people are upset, they sometimes will say things that they didn't actually mean. Do you think that could have been what was going on here? You mean in terms of what uh, Norma said? Pretty much in that, uh, in terms of what she was saying, um, that there may have been something else at play that we haven't seen quite yet. That's like right. Said, no, I think we have to. Yeah, Sorry, I think ahead. that's the only. 
I think the only right way to do it is to have an open mind and to ask for more information. You know, a lot of people, as I say, are confused by the, contra the seeming contradictions. I've been releasing more and more of the footage that we have. I've even been releasing publicly some of the texts, emails, and even voicemails. Today I posted a voicemail on my Twitter uh, or on my Instagram. I'll put it on Twitter, too, uh, from Norma, and, and showing that, you know, she – I mean, I talked to her on the day she died. And, 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 and she said, Father, promise that you'll, you'll, you'll keep going forward in, this, uh, in this, this movement and do it for me, you know, get the job done for me and, and, and ending abortion. She, she, I mean, these are clearly, um, there's clearly more to the story than the documentary tells. And uh, uh, so, yes, they're, they're, and the, really the only, I mean, the only other information we can get, I mean, people like me who knew her, we have a lot of, correspondence we have a lot of things we can release that show her state of mind right up until she died and my associate janet morana here at priest for life she also uh, spoke to norma janet and i were together uh, and speaking to her on that day that she died um so it's like okay people can get more information from us and i wish that some of those who do jump to conclusions would do what you guys are doing here today and, and that is talk with, with us who knew her well um, but secondly, again, going back to Nick uh, Sweeney, the, 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 the guy who put this together, uh, come on, show us the, show us the rest of the footage. Uh, let's help people. You're, you're, you're putting yourself out here in, on the midst of a very controversial issue and getting a lot of people you know, arguing and, and debating and people upset on both sides. Well, you know, it seems to me has some, somewhat of a responsibility to give the fuller story. Right. One of the things I should point out, too, is this. You know, Norma as I've said, was a bundle of contradictions. She would, she would vent, and we knew, you only knew her with time, because, you know, today she says one thing, tomorrow she says something else. How do you really know the, no norm, the, new norm, the real Norma? You only know the real Norma, but, you know, walking with her through years and decades of experience, that's all. And so, and, and that's what we did. But the point is that even when she was on, quote, on the other side, she was conflicted about abortion. I mean, the American people overall are conflicted about, about abortion. And, uh, and, for example, one of the evidences of that is that, you know, in this documentary, you see the um, press, press conference that <clears throat> Gloria Allred, a pro-abortion activist from California, uh, had to tell the world who the Jane Roe of Roe v. Wade was, because up until that point, people didn't know it was Norma McCorvey. So they had this press conference. Well, Norma, the night before the press conference, turns to Gloria and says, by the way, you do know I think abortion is wrong. So it's like, okay, we're about to make you the poster girl of the pro-choice movement, and you're saying abortion is wrong. And, of course, you know, Gloria just went on to ignore that. Um, but then Norma was working for a while in abortion facilities. Well, what did she do? She was talking women out of their abortions. And, again, she was, it was, people have to understand she was a very simple woman very blunt, and she was that way in, in, the, in, in the abortion industry. And she was saying to women, oh, do you know, hey, dear, you know what they're going to do to your baby, don't you? You know, oh, no, well, let me tell you. you know? And she would talk about how they rip apart the baby. Norma was, and to her, this wasn't playing any game. This was like, well, this is the way it is, and if we're supposed to be helping these women, we're going to tell them what this is. So people have to understand that as a context, too. And, you know, the change about abortion and people you know people try to say oh well you know we paid her to change which of course she never she never said we paid her to change uh, did she get payment for work done did she get stipends for going out and speaking like every other speaker does yeah and in fact we uh, helped her to arrange some of those uh, 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 events but um to pay in order to change that is a very different thing and uh but you know even if one were to posit that change from what she already thought abortion was wrong if she was acting if she was playing games if she was faking there was a lot of faking going on when she was you know uh, uh, stumping for abortion too and, and again people have to understand norma this is the way she was right i'm reading uh flip benham's statement here um yes. and he was talking about a conversation he had with his son david and I know uh, Flip was pretty instrumental in Norma coming to Christ. And his yeah. son David says, you know, isn't it convenient to release this after she's already passed away? Uh, yeah. Because if she was still here, she would have gone and set the record straight. Well, uh, you know, 
<laughs> that's a very good point. I made that point when in with some of my other interviews. I said, look, you know, sh- there were, as you can imagine, there were many people over the course of Norma's uh, life who came to her with a camera and a microphone and a, and a steno pad. They wanted to interview her, and there were people that wanted to do documentaries, and there were various movies made about her, about her conversion, about Roe v. Wade, and she was always nervous about that. And, and what I mean is, she would, again, she would come to me and some of her other close friends, and she would say, uh, you know, Father, um, th- so-and-so approached me, and they want to do a film on me, and I'm not so sure. Do you know anything about this person? And she, she, would, she would ask me. Um, and I saw her refuse to either start or finish a number of documentary projects because she she ended up not trusting uh, the people involved, and I also saw her insist insist on seeing the final product before it was released so that she could make sure it did not misrepresent her. Now, um, you know, so it's pretty, uh, you know, you, 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 again, believe behavior. The psychiatrists say not just words. Believe behavior. And, you know, who was using her here? I mean, we, we here, and when I say we, we at Priests for Life, uh, helped Norma interface with the pro-life movement in a lot of her speaking engagements. And you know what we did as the years went on? We said to Norma, you know what, you can't do this anymore because you're, it's, it's not good for your health. And she wasn't able to do it right. She would get uh, these speaking engagements. And we found that the best way to, to have her you know, stand in front of an audience and talk was actually to have her sit together with me or together with Janet Morana or together with another one of her close uh, uh, friends and mentors. And we would ask her very specific questions so that her mind stayed focused and so that she would not omit the things that were most important for that audience to hear or go off on tangents about nonsense. She had a tendency to do both. And so we, we said to her, look, if you're going to speak in front of a group, let's do it in a Q&A fashion, an interview fashion. That was the best. Instead of putting her behind a podium and expecting her to give a speech, some of those events kind of imploded because she was too distraught. She was too... Um, uh, it was just too too much for her, and uh, emotionally and physically taxing to be doing all that traveling. So I said to her at a certain point, Norma, your book speaks for itself. There are all kinds of videos out there. Let those tell the story. You have got to take care of yourself. And uh, slowly but surely, she eventually accepted that. Like I said before, Norma was not somebody who allowed herself to be you know, controlled um, in, in, in terms of her life decisions. She could be led very easily to say different things, but it was like, no, I'm not going to, um, you know, she, she realized I'm not going to kill myself doing this. Uh, and in that regard, then um, she, uh, she was able to, um, you know, get a little bit more peace and, and, and a little bit better, uh, better health care for herself. Okay. Um, we actually do have a, a caller on the line. Oh, good. We have, yeah, we have Brent. Brent, uh, would you please, uh, what are you doing, uh, first of all? Hey, this is Brent. Uh, thanks for taking my call. And uh, Father Frank, thanks for uh, uh, coming on and uh, being interviewed and sharing your experience uh, with, you. uh, with Norma. Uh, this is, I'm not calling uh, directly to discuss Norma. Uh, or the documentary or anything uh, with respect to that. What I was interested in uh, hearing your thoughts on were the use of graphic imagery, uh, what I call visual rhetoric. Um, I know throughout the the pro-life, sort of the spectrum of pro-lifers, there's a lot of diversity. And on one side of the spectrum, there's people who are... uh, uh, violently, if you will, opposed to the use of graphic imagery, uh, aborted fetuses and so forth. And then there are those on the other side of the spectrum who are very much in favor of using it, uh, like I am, within uh, certain parameters, of course, uh, as an effective use of what I call visual rhetoric. In fact, I'm not a Roman Catholic, as I was telling uh, the screener, um, I am a believer, 
uh, in the Lord. Um, I was uh, baptized and confirmed Episcopalian. (laughs) And then I had sort of a born-again experience in my early 20s. But interestingly enough, I've always been pro-life. It's just been the last 20 or so years that I became active. Um, And uh, as faculty advisor for Students for Life uh, at my alma mater, we uh, embraced the use of visual rhetoric, graphic imagery, and um, uh, we obviously got into a lot of controversy because of that. But also I noticed a group came to my church uh, sometime last year. I won't name the name of the group, but they used graphic imagery, and many of my fellow congregants were uh, really upset by that. I welcome these people, <laughs> and I think that uh, that didn't go over too well. But um, So I noticed as a non-Roman Catholic but a religious person in the pro-life movement that many of those on the front lines with me are Roman Catholics who embrace the use of graphic imagery as a form of visual rhetoric. And I've always respected my fellow pro-life Roman Catholics because of that. Uh, not that I'm considering conversion or anything to the Roman Catholic uh, Church, but uh, so I just wondered what your thoughts were uh, on the use of, of graphic imagery as visual rhetoric on the one hand, and B, if you are in favor of um, that form of uh, rhetoric used, how would you speak to fellow Roman Catholics who may be opposed to the use of uh, graphic imagery. Thank you for uh, responding to my questions, and thanks for taking my call. Well, Brent, thank you for your commitment to the pro-life cause and for a great question. It's an important question, one actually that I speak about often, because I am convinced uh, uh, through not only experience, but also through a study of the, the history of social reform, as, as a number of my colleagues have also done, that, that using this imagery to show people who the victim is, is essential. The reason, as you say, that, it, 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 that, that this approach is met by a variety of responses among pro-lifers is simply because the showing of this imagery is met by a variety of responses among the general public. Uh, some people are, and I have, I've seen it myself, I mean, we have no... no um, activity we do or section of our website that we post gets more response than when we show these pictures of what an abortion actually does to a baby. And I have seen, and and we have the testimonies posted, in fact, we made a special website called lookatabortion.org. And Look at Abortion shows not only the images but the reaction of people to them and i've got you know over the years all kinds of messages saying up until five minutes ago i was extremely pro-choice but when i looked at these pictures on your website i have completely changed my mind about abortion it is murder um and one after another after another all these reactions and then we get people i've stood in front of abortion facilities holding these signs and have had um uh couples drive up in their car towards the facility, see my sign, stop dead in their tracks, and say, is that what abortion does? I could never do that to my baby. And they turn around and they, and they refuse to have an abortion. It works. There's no question it works. Um, it upsets people, but, you know, we need to be upset. by Anybody who's not upset by seeing uh, what an abortion is, is isn't, isn't connecting, you know, with, with their conscience or their feelings. So uh, what I would say to people, uh, like you say, among and, – and there is a particular resistance of, uh, 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 to this in the structural, hierarchical, institutional, if you will, Catholic community – um, and elsewhere too, but but I, I find it particularly strong in the Catholic community that that people will say, oh no no we can't do this we can't do this. Some of them claim that it's you know it hurts those that have had abortions. As I mentioned earlier in the show, that's one of our specialties is healing people who have had abortions. And for many of them, it actually helps. It helps them break through the denial and get on the road to healing. Um, but other people will will object for other reasons. And I say to them, look look at the history. 
not, not only the experience of those of us who use this imagery, but look at the history of social reform. We have Alveda King uh, on our team, niece of Martin Luther King Jr., and she points out how the civil rights movement used the imagery all the time, Emmett Till, and, and, and the images, the violent uh, uh, way that the uh, peaceful protesters were, were, were treated, and, and it was get it, capturing this on camera that began to arouse the conscience of America. So we can go on and on about the history, but, but you know, the question is, is there any reason to think that the pro-life effort is exempt from the principles that we have learned from other social reform movements. And of course, there's no reason to think we're exempt. We have to study those principles and apply them wisely. So thanks again for a really, uh, really important question. And again, it's lookatabortion.org for people that want to learn more. Yes, and uh, thank you again for your call, Brent. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have time for a follow-up or, or a back-and-forth or anything, but we really appreciate your call. So we are nearing the end of our, our time together here. Uh, Nathan did actually have uh, one last question for you. So uh, go ahead yes. and, and pose that, Nathan. You have at least several decades of experience working in the pro-life movement as both a leader and as an activist. And so what do you think are the biggest drawbacks or challenges that you have faced as a pro-life leader? And what would you recommend to up-and-coming pro-life advocates? Uh, it, yeah, one of the greatest uh, one of the greatest drawbacks is simply the uh, not putting the issue as a priority. It's so easy uh, for people to say, you know, yeah, I'm I'm against abortion. I realize how bad it is, uh, but then to be convinced by others, um, not that they necessarily concluding this themselves. But the greatest pressure we have is actually those that, you know, they present themselves as our friends. Maybe they're our, our, our spiritual leaders. Maybe they're uh, relatives. Maybe they're our employers or people in our lives that have influence over us, sort of tampering down our enthusiasm and making us feel like we're being too extreme. You know, people, even, even some, some church leaders have said to me, oh, you know, Father Frank, you're too aggressive on abortion. And I say, well, when abortion stops being aggressive on these little babies, come and talk to me, but in the meantime, I'm going to be aggressive about it. And, and that's the biggest obstacle, really. It's the biggest thing is, is, to, is to, you know, I mean, the facts are clear. The logic is, is, is evident. It, the pictures, like we were just talking about, are real. It's like, come on, if this is, if the, if this is the killing of a baby, let's act like it. And, and, and because the pressure is this. The pressure is the non-response all around us from respectable people. It's like they're not getting excited about it. They're not, they're not yelling and shouting like the house is on fire. And that's the biggest challenge is to realize that if we feel like yelling and shouting because the house is on fire, you know what? Don't let the non-reaction of everybody else uh, make you hesitate for one moment. Shout at the top of your voice. Get involved in this effort. It is as bad as it seems, and let's, let's, let's bring it to an end. And uh, uh, when people have that spirit, that's how we make progress. So uh, where can people find you online, Father Frank? Okay, simple website, endabortion.us. Endabortion.us is uh, Priests for Life. Love to connect with people on social media. FR Frank Pavone is my handle on Twitter and Instagram. And, and uh, I, I really, really uh, value our time together here today and hope that people will uh, you know, come and check us out and we'll work together for this uh, great cause. Yeah, we've uh, definitely appreciated it too. Do you have any uh, any projects or anything going on you'd like to to plug before we we leave? Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, the election is so important for for the pro life movement, and we've got a political responsibility website called prolifevote dot com. And uh, we'd like to pe elect people to take a look at that, to get involved in the elections. Let's be registered to vote. Let's be active, uh, informed voters. And, and we've got projects along those lines to, to just, uh, uh, right now, very heavy emphasis on voter registration. But ProLifeVote.com will show you how you can get involved. Well, great. Well, thank you again, Frank, for uh, for giving up your, your Memorial Day uh, or an hour of your Memorial Day today to come and, and discuss this uh, documentary with us. We really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you both for your work. Thank you very much. All right. Well, if you've uh, if you've enjoyed our our discussion here, uh, or even if you haven't, <laughs> feel free to uh, share our our uh, the podcast around social media. You can rate and review us on our Facebook page, uh, or on our on iTunes. We are on iTunes as well. 
Uh, now, this is a weekly podcast, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other work that I do in the pro-life movement. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. I subsist off of donations from financial supporters, and people like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com and click on donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put a donation into my account. And donations are also tax deductible. And if you'd like to donate to this podcast specifically, we, we've, we have actually received uh, donations to the podcast, um, which we always appreciate. Uh, you can also indicate that in the notes section as well. Nathan, you have any uh, upcoming events that you've uh, got going on you want to mention before we uh, take off? Uh, as of right now, I do not. Okay, yeah. I, I mean, it's kind of difficult with the, with the lockdown and everything. Uh, I have actually been asked by a friend in South Carolina to talk about euthanasia on a Zoom meeting that he's doing in uh, mid-July. I, I don't have the uh, the exact date for that on, on here, but uh, I'll definitely be, be posting that. So keep an eye out for that. That'll be a, a great uh, discussion. Uh, with that... That's pretty much it. So we hope that you're having a good Memorial Day. We hope that you're able to continue to uh, memorialize those that uh, those friends and, and family members that that have been lost in war. And um, we will uh, we'll see you next time. Testing one, two, three. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.